Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everyone. It's Wednesday night. And so you know what that means. Dinner can wait, right, Mary Kay? Because it's time for Friends in Fiction. We are really looking forward to tonight. So let's get started. I am Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And this is Friends in Fiction. Four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, readers, and librarians. Tonight, we will be talking with Philippa Gregory about her new novel, Dawn Lands. We'll talk about living and writing in the UK and about the incredible women she creates in her historical novels. And don't forget, as you know, we continue to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page, where you can find Philippa's books and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. It's a new month, and you know what that means, a new reading challenge. We know many of you have been participating in our very first Friends in Fiction reading challenge, organized by our friend Anissa Armstrong. This month, we're reading books written by co-writers, such as When We Had Wings, the fabulous book by Christina, Ariel, and Susan that we talked about on the show just two weeks ago. So if you're looking for a way to keep track of these books and your other reading, we would love to recommend our beautiful Friends in Fiction reading journal available exclusively at Oxford Exchange. And I want to remind everybody about our Writer's Block podcast with all of us and our beloved librarian pal, Ron Block. We'll always post links under announcements each Friday when a new one drops. On the most recent episode, Ron and Patty talked to Amy Wallen about her newest, How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies. I got to listen to that one. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. And she's so funny. And it's like reading the artist's way with pies. Like she's she's really great. Yeah, That's amazing. I'm all right. I would just eat the pie and not write. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, her point is, if you make the pie, you will write because you're being creative. Okay. Um, Um, And then Friday, Ron will talk to Jennifer Coburn about her new novel, Cradles of the Reich. Listen, review, subscribe, and tell a friend if you like what you hear. And for all of you, we are pre-taping tonight's episode because Philippa is in the UK. And 7 p.m. for all of us is midnight for Philippa. And we are so thrilled she'd join us, and we can't quite ask her to stay up past what is most definitely my bedtime. Yes. (laughs) Now, you know, every week we love doing an Ask Us Anything segment, and so in the after show tonight, we'll be taking some of those questions that have been piling up. So keep asking, and we'll keep answering. All right, ladies, let's introduce Philippa. Not that she really needs an introduction. I know, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, Philippa Gregory is a best-selling author of many historical novels, including The Other Bowling Girl and The White Queen. She is a member of the Society of Authors, and in 2016, she was presented with the award for Outstanding Contribution to Historical Fiction by the Historical Writers Association. In 2018, she was awarded an Honorary Platinum Award by Nielsen for achieving significant lifetime sales of her books. And in 2020, she was made a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honors for her services to literature and charity. Wow. In fact, her other great interest is the charity that she founded nearly 20 years ago, Gardens for the Gambia. She raised funds and paid for almost 200 wells in the primary schools of this African country. And thousands of school children have been able to learn uh, market gardening and have been able to grow food to eat in the school gardens watered by the wells. During the pandemic, the charity suspended well digging and focused on funding washing and disinfectant programs and providing materials to help the community. She graduated from the University of Sussex and earned a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, where she is a regent and was made alumni of the year in 2009. Her new novel, Dawnlands, was just released yesterday, and I, for one, could not put this book down. I am so invested in this family that I really hope she is well on her way with the next one. We will definitely ask her. So, Sean, could you bring on Philippa, please? Hi, Philippa. Hi. Hi, Philippa. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. We are so thrilled to have you and all the way from the UK with the miracle of modern technology. Yes, so, and it's, mid- it's tea time here, so you caught me at a very UK time. <laughs> oh, I wish we were all having tea and crumpets and my favorite clotted cream right now. <laughs> yeah, if not all together. Yes. So Dawn Lands, it, I can't wait to talk about it. It's such a sweeping novel that it's hard to describe in a few lines, but could you try? Well, it's it's a third book in What's a Family Saga. So you have a big cast of characters to start off with. Uh, one of them, Ned, uh, is in New England uh, at the time of King Philip's War between the colonists and the First Nation people. And uh, the rest of the family are in England, in London, The two women, the matriarchal heads of the family, are running their warehouse on the edge of the Thames in London, and they are experiencing increased success because the restoration of the king, uh, which happened in 1660, has meant for them more prosperity in the expansion of England and English trade overseas. Uh, The villain of the piece is as she was in book two. Uh, Those of you who've read that will love to see the return of Livia, the Italian widow who married, uh, trapped an aristocrat, Sir James Avery, into marriage at the end of the last book. And in this one, she manages to get herself to the court of the new king and his queen, James II and Queen Mary of Medina. And not many people know much history about these two because they're not on the throne for very long, but actually they're overthrown in what is really the the equivalent of the French Revolution. It's an extraordinary storming of the palace and running away of the royal family. And they go into exile forever and England no longer has a Stuart monarchy. the decision is to replace it with actually James's daughter, who's married to uh, William of Orange. So that's when you get the start of the Hanoverian monarchy. William and Mary. 
Yes. The street right here where my driveway is, is, is Orange Street named for William of Orange. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it, oh, it's very important. important. It, we're coming into a period which is very, very important for American history, of course. Yeah. Um, but actually, William of Orange doesn't have such a great reputation in England. Because <laughs> I've heard he, that. He <laughs> so the rumors go, right? It, yeah. makes for, it makes the town tour more interesting, though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But the other thing we love to ask is that's what the book is about. And I can't believe I would have never been able to summarize it so succinctly. But Philippa, what do you think the book is really about? about. Deep down no, at its heart. I absolutely agree with you that there's always two questions with every novel, which is what is yes. the narrative? What happens in it? What is the plot? And what is the importance of it? What did it mean yes. to the author? What are you going to go away in, in a way, hopefully, holding in your heart. And I think at the depth of it, it's about freedom. So we have mm. uh, someone who uh, was enslaved uh, in the Americas and comes to England and gets her freedom and then loses it again. Uh, and then we have someone who uh, is, in a sense, enslaved to the love of a lost love, which is Sir James Avery. And we have a woman who consistently through the three novels fights and gets her own freedom which is Eleanor and at the very end of it we see uh, what for me was the happiest ending I could imagine for this woman who it, it was beautiful one, we see tried as a witch and just escaping with her life in book two we see you know her coming to some kind of emotional and financial stability and in this one it's a restoration to her homeland and her coming into her full power as an older woman. So it's about it's about the different freedoms that people can aspire and the different sorts of freedoms they can win. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. That's a beautiful answer. Well, you obviously, as everyone knows, have written um, many, many novels that delve into the history of England. Of course, The Other Boleyn Girl, which I have to just tell you, um, that was the very first novel that I read when I got out of grad school. So I had had, you know, six years of reading what everyone else told me to read. And it was like, I remember going and getting this book. And um, I would have told you at the time that I did not like historical fiction. <laughs> and I read that big, huge, beautiful book in like two days. It was all I did. And I've been a huge historical fiction fan ever since. So thank you for that, because um, that was, wow, I'm sure it was sort of a, I'm sure a lot of people had that experience because it was just such a compelling novel as they all are. Um, but of course, you know, The White Princess and so many of your other novels are also set in England. And this one, Dawnlands, is the third in the series and set during the reign of the Papist Stuarts. King James and his queen consort, Mary Beatrice. Then there is the non-royal family we follow during this time period. And let's just say they are more than complicated. Talk about family secrets. Oh my goodness. So I know you started this series with Tidelands and there's more to come as we work our way through the decades. So can you talk to us about this family? Where did they come from? And what was the origin for a series like this? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a, you know, my reputation is obviously for writing historical fiction, mostly set around the courts of uh, the Tudor period and the 
before them, the Plantagenets. But actually, my interest in the period is more about the people who are powerless in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I've always been focused on the women of the period. And uh, I've always been focused on the story of women trying to survive in what is sometimes almost impossible circumstances. And so it was natural that as we came more towards the modern stage, that I would want to write about women uh, in more ordinary lives in, you know, what used to be called the common people. Uh, so I wanted really to get a sense of, of a family that were both rooted in ordinary life and who also expanded the extraordinary success and expansion which happened to England mostly as a result of the slave trade but also as a result of the burgeoning empire and funnily enough uh, my own family history goes back to this sort of time and my own family history okay. were grain traders and actually uh, I have put the fictional wharf on the side of the Thames where their real life wharf was and actually went oh, to the very spot oh. and so it's 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 one of those occasions where the history you know really joins up with the fiction you're creating and in yeah. this case with my personal history which is really extraordinary. Um, I didn't want to write my own family history because uh, I don't have enough material to go on anyway. I know of their existence <laughs> and I've got things like their account books, but I don't have much diary or journals of any interest. Um, but what they're, you know, but it is, they're in a sense, they're a typical family in the way that my Dornland's family is, in that they rise with the prosperity of the English Empire and that takes them across the world as the Dornland's family does. And I wanted to write a big, big family epic saga. Funnily enough, because I was reading John Goldsworthy's Foresight Saga just for pleasure. And I realized that the scene in it, which I loved the best out of this enormous, enormous set of novels, was actually the one where Soames Foresight goes to Somerset uh, in the hopes of finding the origin of his yeoman fathers and actually gets his, his fancy London car stuck in a mud field and goes yeah. like, well, this probably is the origin of my yeoman farms. And I went, what well, I'm always really interested in as a historian in the past. And what's really satisfying to me is to write the story of a family. If I can, I'll continue up to uh, modern times, but at, that, that so many of us start uh, and our past is uh, in pretty poor, pretty muddy, pretty, dirty circumstances because we are although we like to read about kings and queens we are mostly common people <laughs> yeah, well that sort of segues into my question i know that you seamlessly combine the historical the political and the personal do you think um your your past as being a journalist has that helped shape your writing yeah, but what a compliment. Thank you. I mean, the uh, the idea of seamlessly combining personal, political and historical, that's the job. You know, <laughs> that, that's what I set out every day to do. And yes, I mean, I think everything helps um, except the things which are a real disadvantage. You know, so journalism training is was a very good training to get me beyond that attitude, which some authors have, which is that they can only write in in perfect circumstances so nobody ever said to a news editor i'm just not in the mood today i don't know what it is you just you know it, it never that phrase never occurs in a newsroom um, so that's very helpful in terms of a discipline towards writing which says 
every day I'm going to at least get something down on paper and at, at the very, very worst, I'll throw it away the next day. But every day I have to write something if I'm going to publish at the speed that I like to publish, which used to be a novel a year. Um, now, I think probably the background of research and history is more important than anything else. And my real passion for good quality literature, novels, is probably the most important thing because it's that that makes me aspire to write, not just seamlessly, not just joining these things together, but to make out of it a really fine novel. It's not enough to write uh, accurate history and it's not enough to write good personal stories. For me, before it goes to the editor, it's got to really sing as a novel. It's got to be, it's got to be, uh, a pleasure to read, ideally. I think yeah. you've I think you've accomplished that in space. Yes. And you know, I'm interested in your research because I know you've said the more research you do, the more I think there is an untold history of women. And I think um, it must be such a challenge. There's lots of history, of course, of of, of the royals because they're, um, you know, that has been written and and journaled. But how on earth do you do the research of the commoner? Well, there's there's a huge archive about common, indeed about common women, um, but it's almost all written by uh, the justices who are sitting in, in judgment on them, or the policemen who arrest them, or the men who are divorcing them. You know, in a sense, we, you know, we are not women, are not victors uh, in the in the big struggle. Uh, until very, very recently. So all the history is written by the victors. So most of women's history is written by men. The first draft of women's history is written by men. So, you know, even when you get uh, to the stage that people are writing uh, pamphlets and news sheets, these are mostly written by men. You, you, there's very little written by women about women until really uh, the English Civil War, where there's this real spur for women to write of their personal lives in personal letters to each other in an attempt to keep these separated families together, families separated by war. And even then, of course, that's only literate women. So uh, women of working classes and women in poverty, you don't get much written by them, except the very, very rare poet. I think there's a couple of poets. Um, and so you're really, you're extrapolating from what's a very, adverse record. So you look at what the justices say. And one of the things that I absolutely love, I'm, I'm doing a research on a non-fiction book at the moment. And one of the things that's so wonderful is over and over again, I read about a judge trying women for rioting. And he will say, you know, they were unruly and they were insulting and they were disobedient and they were surly and they weren't polite when they were arrested and all of these things. And what you read through it is an absolutely theatrical demonstration of need. So what women almost always do, they, women always lead in a food rut, they always break into the stores or they grab the shop owners and they make them sell the goods at what they consider to be a reasonable price. Or they break into ships and don't let the captains take the corn or the grain out of that village, out of that county, because what they're doing is basically trying to get enough food for their children to eat. And so yeah. it's 
always women leading the food riots and it's always the report that you get of it is almost never violence but always this sort of theatrical threat so they say things like um i'm going to drag his puddings out of him you know i'm going to <laughs> literally you know put my hand down his throat and claw his stomach yeah. out but very very rarely do you get any violence in a in a food riot and everybody understands what's happening and the reports that the magistrates file are clearly knowing they know what this is and they also very often it doesn't come to court anyway they just report to say the privy council that there was a food riot and it was resolved by them the gp the justice of the peace going into the streets stopping the riot uh, weighing the loaves sometimes, weighing out the grain, setting a fair price, giving it to the people who had up until this moment been an uncontrollable riotous mob who now take what they wanted and go quietly home. And that's the end of the food riot. Wow. So I think I think I'm going to use that phrasing the next time I need to negotiate something. I'll rip, rip out the rip, rip the puddings out of them. Right out of you. Yeah. Rip, rip your puddings out of you. Yeah, it's, it's, good. it's a it. traditional feminist threat. Ah, that's amazing. I, I, I just, I love hearing these stories. I, you know, I write historical fiction too. And I think, you know, what you can find in these models of the past is just so fascinating and still so relevant. So uh, you just do this so beautifully. Um, but speaking of things you do beautifully, you are also a master of the opening scene. So in Dawnlands, Livia, as you mentioned, is summoned to court as the new Stuart King takes the throne. Um, so I'm curious, just because you... You take on these big sweeping projects, and we've talked a little bit about the research you do, and you know, kind of where where the um, the underpinning of the book comes from. But I'm really curious how you actually put the book together in terms of the story. So, can you talk a little bit about your writing life? For example, do you outline and plan ahead? Do you keep a family chart? Can you talk to us just a little bit about the mechanics of how you write a big sweeping book like this? That, that that you pick up that as the first scene is quite curious because it wasn't the first scene originally. I had before that, I had Ned setting sail from uh, actually Boston uh, as my first scene. And I wanted to start with him because it's in a sense him returning to England to support the Monmouth Rebellion that starts the plot rolling. And after I'd written it as my first scene, I went like, yeah, but... You know, there's something about the real terribleness of Livia, uh, the sort of glorious, glamorous, you know, maleficent terribleness of Livia that uh, that really just grabs the reader straight away. And I think in a first scene, you want to do a number of things simultaneously. One is you want to hook the reader with the first sentence. So the minute they open the book, you want them to go like, oh, I'm glad to be here, wherever it is. And I want to see what's going to happen. So with Livia, she walks downstairs at this beautiful house and she uh, walks it. She takes her husband into the library where they won't be disturbed. And she tells him she's been invited to court. And immediately you're you're in the heart of the book. So here's this woman who whose husband clearly hates her and she's announcing that she's going to go to the royal court. So of course you want to know what happens next. I mean, yeah. It's like you've, you've got a great starting point there. Um, yes. And then how you bring in the other things is a real, um, it's a real, it's almost, I want to say it's like knitting. I mean, you really just have to go like, and there's this thread and, you know, I must never let it go. Once I've brought it in, it's got to stay in. It's got to be 
in again close enough so the reader doesn't forget it. But you can trust your readers because they're intelligent people as well and they're enjoying the book. So they're going to follow it. Uh, you, you don't have to sort of hold their hands too much. But one of the sort of technical things I find really useful is that I do a date heading and a place heading at the top of each section. I don't do chapters, uh, but I do, in a sense, ground everywhere in its place and its exact date. So when they're weaving together, uh, you could really follow just one story all the way through if you wanted to. But that's how it works woven together that the dates always work so nobody hears about something before i've told you it happened you know it's like a yeah. little really tricky quite tricky to do but one of the ways of doing that i find is is really doing a very precise date for every event and sometimes those are of course historical events so they have a precise date yes. so i make sure that's correct and sometimes they're fictional events. And so I make sure they fit around the historical event in a way which is, uh, you know, correct for the story. Now, do you do you outline on paper before you start? Like, do you know how you're going to go about all of this weaving? Or do you just sit down to a bank, blank page with your head full of, you know, story and characters and information and just go? Yeah, I just go. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> love that. Incredible. That's that incredible. Is, yeah, that really is. I, you know, as I said, I write historical fiction too, and I cannot imagine doing it without an outline because I feel like, you know, I just need to know how, how everything's interacting with these real moments in time. So, a, that's fascinating. B, you must be a much more intelligent woman than I am <laughs> to be able to keep that all in your head. I don't. It, 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 in a way, it's not about. I mean, thank you. I'll, I'll take it, <laughs> but. Um, in a way, it's not about logical intelligence. It's not It's not that sort of mm. white brainy thing. It's more opening the book, starting the characters in motion and letting them do what they need to do, given that I know what their characters are and I know what the time that they're living is, in is. And I know where I want them to end up. But I don't know where I want all of them to end up. A lot of it's just going to develop along the way. And part of the benefits of experience of doing this so very often is to trust that yes. that it will come you know that yes. in a way you can yeah, in a way I can you know when I say I open and yeah I just go I mean I let them go and that's where it that's where in a sense the storytelling fictional part of it really takes off if it, it can fly I sort of picture you with a giant basket of yarn at your feet. And there's one ball of yarn is this family and this storyline. And another one is this one. And then I just, I, I mean, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, then she reaches in here and she brings out this thread and she just weaves it through, awesome. which is that way probably, more. And also, you know, the, 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 the great job of women was spinning. I mean, I do feel oh. like I'm pulling in a bit of fleece and twisting it in. And, you know, and that is, I mean, that is very much how, you know, how you spin a yarn, how you tell a story, spin a yarn. It's the same phrase. I love it. Awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Speaking of research, I want you to talk just a little bit because I was, I'm, I mean, I'm immersed in every single setting from the Royal Court to the wharf. I didn't know anything about water stairs, the English countryside, Barbados, but I want to talk about Fairmere because I want to know a little bit about the history of these manor homes and estates and how not only did they change hands, but they changed names 
depending on the whims of the owner. And that's one of the fascinating, one of the many fascinating parts of the book is watching this kind of manipulation of what that home is. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, this is a this is a story which really sits outside time. I mean, you will have in your own cities, uh, you know, what in the England England we call gentrification, which is that yeah. you know people take a fancy to an area and um, do it up, renovate it, move in people of uh, similar wealth and prosperity, and then the next thing is that what the area is called is no longer regarded as suitable for the new inhabitants, so they don't like it called like that anymore. And Livia, our, our ferociously ambitious uh, Italian widow, uh, she is very, very happy to buy her son the home that he wants, which is set in a in a very, very muddy harbour in Sussex in England. And it's called Foulmire, uh, <laughs> meaning foul meaning dirty and Maya meaning mud. So it's it's basically called Smelly Mud Harbour. And, you know, I know uh, this place myself. It's a real place. And uh, when the tide is out, it is certainly a Smelly Muddy Harbour. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, she buys the property and uh, immediately she sets about improving it. So she puts big gate posts on it and she's going to subsequently want to enclose land, which is a big social challenge to the lives of the poor in uh, 17th century England. But the first thing she wants to do is to make it sound posher, more elegant, more elite. Uh, so Falma, Smelly Mud Manor, is not going to cut it at court with her. <laughs> so uh, she first of all calls it uh, Fermia, and then ultimately she calls it Fairmile. And in a sense, the dragging of this poor family from poor working class status up to elite status is is established by Livia and her ambition by their own material success and their own hard work. And it's really signified by the fact that they end up as squires in the house where they had been servants and that the house itself is renamed. So fascinating. And, and there's there's so many stories hidden inside the story whether it's the royal court and how they operate com compared to today, how the queen now is related to the, the family then. Um, but I really found the manor home situation really fascinating as it shifted through the book. So, yeah. I think always whenever I'm writing, the locations are terribly important. So I always go to everywhere that I write about. And, you know, this book is no exception. But uh, this place is a place that I know and love very, very much. I lived there myself for about four or five years when I was oh, a young yeah. woman. So I, I know the landscape, you know, when I describe the oak that leans over the harbour, uh, yeah. you know, I know that oak, it's literally there, you know, I've sat under it. So all of the places, I mean, locations, I think are tremendously important especially in historical fiction because you have both a lot of work to do in that you have to take out of your reader's imagination telegraph poles and trains and cars and make them understand that being somewhere for instance Sussex to London is a journey of many many hours and you can only do it uh, by horseback there's no that, you know, there's that there's no cars are invented and the coaches are having to go on very muddy roads. So it's not easy at all. It's not an easy journey. And in this at this time, the uh, 
place which is called Selsey uh, was actually a, a genuine island and you can only get on and off it um, by driving when the tide is low and the rest of the time you have to take the ferry and my family were the ferrymen uh, at, the, at the point of the, the tide of the harbour. So it's, I mean, the location in a sense forms some of the character of the people yeah. as well. Sure. And, that's why it's that's why it is it's indeed it's another thread the landscape is another thread of the story for sure i like knowing that your fam oh i'm sorry mary Kay. go ahead oh no i just was i was thinking aloud that the landscape is as challenging as the other as yeah. the other things that these these folks are are dealing with so yeah you gave us a really challenging landscape yes absolutely and i think pre-modern uh landscape and weather is or is rightly a character in its own right. You yeah. know, you think something like Wuthering Heights, you know, it just wouldn't work set in a town. You know, it just wouldn't work. It's sort of temperate weather. But the, the landscape and the weather before uh, the Industrial Revolution gives us, you know, light during the day and, you know, reliable shelter and indeed reliable waterproof clothes. Landscape and weather is as important in a historical novel as a character. Yeah, it's so true. That's so true. It's a really good point. Well, um, I love knowing about your family, that your family is is sort of tied up in this story. I had no idea. And I, I think that's so fascinating. Um, yes. I know our listeners are going to think that too. Um, so Philippa, I think we probably all feel like this whole show has been a little bit of a writing tip. I feel like <laughs> I'm like leaning in. Um, but we do love a good writing tip here. We say it's for everyone else, but really it's for us. And it's why we do the show so that we can learn from the greats like you. So would you mind sharing a writing tip with us tonight? Uh, well, this is, a t this is a tip as to what to do if you get stuck. Oh, good. Oh, uh, and, you know, hey, I'm no writing this down. I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> no, you will remember it because, of course, I'm telling it in the form of a story. Okay. Um, uh, in order to, in order to perform this tip you have to have a couple of things you have to have a long distance path uh, very close to your door conveniently close uh, ideally you have to have a dog i know one of you has a dog so that's good you're already <laughs> set up I suggest, <laughs> I suggest you have a flask of drinking water and if you possibly can make yourself a sandwich and when you get stuck it's because you're trying to make your unconscious, which is writing the story for you, do something it doesn't want to do. Mm. And that's a mistake anyway. You shouldn't be doing that. But you don't always know what it is that your unconscious doesn't want to do. For some reason, basically, the little box in your brain which gives you the, the dreams, the stories, the unconscious life, it's just got stuck on something. So what you have to do is to get it unstuck. And the way to do it is to perform upon it this this following bluff. You say to it very, very loudly, I'm now going to walk away from my home, my comfortable home, my study and my laptop. And I'm going to go on walking in the same direction, probably west, because that's towards the setting sun, so it won't like that. Uh, probably west. And I'm going to go on walking. And when night falls, I'm going to go on walking. And I'm going to sit down when I want to and drink my water and eat my sandwich. And my dog and I are going to go on walking. And we're not going to turn around for home until I've solved this problem, until I know how to go ahead, until I get unstuck. And I've done this only three or four times. And never has my unconscious 
had the courage to say, <laughs> yes, walk then, go on then, walk then, walk into darkness, walk into cold, walk all night and don't come home. It always folds. It always folds. <laughs> <laughs> That might be my favorite writing tip I've she ever She just won writing tips. Fantastic. You might not have a tutor crown, yeah. but you have the writing tip crown. For sure. <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah. Kristen, right. you're going to have to get a dog now. I, yeah. I, I know. I know exactly. Or, or you could borrow play. one. Can, can I take my child out and just drag him along with me until, yeah. until the sun sets? <laughs> no unconscious ever operates when a child is there. It's just not safe. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Yes. Yeah, we would wind up talking about dragons the entire time. Yeah, and then where would mom, we mom, yes. mom, 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 <laughs> mom, mommy, mom. So, um, Philippa, one of the other questions we always like to ask on the show Um you know, you've talked to us a little bit about uh, the things you do like to research. We kind of have an idea of probably what's on your bookshelf. But is there something on your nightstand or on your shelves that we would be surprised to find there? Um, no, I think I'm rather tediously predictable. I mean, <laughs> loads of history, classic literature, quite a lot of feminism. Um I'm trying to think of anything that I read that's out of character. No, sorry. <laughs> no, well that, that's, that's okay. So I have, I have a, a question I can pivot to, which is, is there a book you've read lately that you've loved that you just want to recommend to our audience? Something that we should all know about and, and read because you've loved it. Uh, yes, I've recommended it before, but I think it's a very, very interesting way of writing historical fiction. It's by Anne Rowe, and it's about Rowe, W-R-O-E. Uh, she's actually a journalist, a very well-regarded uh, English journalist. And it's about um, the pretender, the uh, Perkin Warbeck. And I think it's called oh, Perkin God. Warbeck. It's in the Princess, White Princess movie. Oh, my gosh. Yes. The um, imposter. The imposter, yeah. I mean, it's what's interesting about it, she writes it almost as, uh, she writes it as a historical fiction, but she's actually writing a factional account. So she's sort of, she's, she, it's a very, very interesting hybrid. It's an interesting way of doing the hybrid, which is historical fiction. She writes it more as history, but she writes the speculation as if it is a novel. It's a very, very interesting technique. I'd really recommend if you're writing historical fiction to read it just to see how someone else can, does it. It's quite that, curious. Excellent. That's a great recommendation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Philippa, if you wouldn't mind sticking around for another minute, we have more to talk about with you. But we have big news about our releases next year. All four of us have 2023 novels and we'll be doing at least five in-person live Friends and Fiction events. So keep your eye out. We'll be in Columbus, Ohio on April 26th. The, F the Friends in Fiction live launch event for the secret book of Floralia, Patty's book, is set for May 1st in Charleston. It will be a big Friends in Fiction party with a full Charleston experience that you won't want to miss. Philippa, you might want to come over and join us for that. <laughs> you might want to come join us. It's Trisha's like book. A, that sounds like a good party, yeah. <laughs> so put that on your calendar and stay tuned for all the details and ticket link coming soon. Kristen's book is set for June. We'll also have a live event in July for Christie's launch. And once more in the fall for my 2023 Christmas book, assuming I finish it with details. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. 
you were going to say that. I am going to sit out with a flask of water and all three of my dogs and say <laughs> to my subconscious, damn it, I am never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Until you give me the end to this book. That's right. If we don't hear from you by this evening, we'll send Tom yeah. after you, okay? <laughs> All right. And a reminder that our new Friends in Fiction first edition subscription, which is a tongue twister, is available now from the indie bookstore Booktown with an E at the end in Manasquan, New Jersey. And it features signed hardback first editions from all four of us and a Friends in Fiction kitchen towel that has Mary Kay's quote, dinner can wait. It's time for Friends in Fiction. Mm -hmm. And you can order them right now at Booktown.com with an E at the end of Booktown. And of course, we know you won't forget about the Zibby award-winning Friends and Fiction Official Book Club with Brenda and Lisa. So congratulations again to the two of them on that win. That was so exciting. So the club is run by our friends, Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, otherwise known as PB&J, and they host authors for monthly chats. They also have regular happy hours with our Writer's Block podcast host, Ron Block, and they keep everyone in the loop about suggested reads and upcoming releases. So join them on November 21st. First, that's a Monday when I will be there with them and we'll be discussing my novel, The Sweetness of Forgetting, which came out in 2012, but which has just been reissued for its 10th anniversary with a brand new cover, new recipes and updates to the text. We'll be chatting about that in just a few weeks. Awesome. We have one more thing to talk with about. Phil to that is not the, the word. <laughs> yeah. We have one more thing to talk about with Philippa. <laughs> the way I got this script. Yeah. Uh, but don't forget that we are hanging around for an after show to take some of your ask us anything questions. And hopefully I will be able to answer. <laughs> be able to speak correctly. So Philippa, one question we always like to ask. And after you just told us about your family history, eking and working and weaving its way into this trilogy, I'm dying to know. What were the values around reading and writing in your family in England when you were growing up? Oh, I, I didn't come from a very academic family or a scholarly family. My mother read uh, fiction for pleasure. And uh, for me, it was just the absolute favorite hobby. Uh, so I would go to the library on I would bicycle. Uh, to the library oh, on wow. Saturdays and take out the maximum books that I was allowed, which was then uh, three books from the junior section. And I would read three books through the week, as well as reading my school books, and then change again on the Saturday. And um, I can remember getting an adult ticket and then saying to me, you can take four books now. And I went, oh, great. That's, that's, that's mm -hmm. going to just, you know, that's going to be perfect. That's going to give me more books to read. I've just always been... Uh, a, a very, very obsessive habitual reader. And um, I don't think you can be a good writer without really serving an apprenticeship of reading a lot mm. of books. Oh, I bet 90% um, of our answers include the word library. In yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, that's amazing. Philippa, we could talk to you for hours, but we promised to let you go. You have a book tour coming up. You have a book to release, and we are so pleased to be with you. Thank you for joining us so much. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye, you. Uh, well, that was sudden. <laughs> I know. All of a sudden, she's gone. I know. Gosh, she's great. Anyway, go ahead. 
Um, okay. Well, now you know you that uh, you can find all our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. Be sure to come back right here next week when we welcome Lisa Unger. See you in about 30 seconds for our Ask Us Anything After Show. Wow. I had like a million more things I wanted to ask her. <laughs> she was great. She was wonderful. The accent yeah. doesn't hurt either. No. no. <laughs> well, everyone, welcome back to our Ask Us Anything show. Before we get to the Ask Us Anything part, we want to tell all you writers out there that we are doing a daily writing tip for November Novel Writing Month on our Instagram. So every day you can go see writing tips just like the incredible one that Philippa just gave us and engage there. But Mary Kay, will you ask the first question? Yeah, we've got all these Ask Us Anything questions coming in. Karen Dill, Dilla, Dillery, I guess that's how you pronounce it, asks, how do we each choose our character names? Because some of them are so unique. So, Christy, talk to us. Um, so this is actually kind of a funny story about uh, some of my character names um, that I don't think I've told on this before, but if I have... Sorry, but probably everyone hasn't heard it. Um, so when I got uh, the book deal for the Peachtree Bluff series, it was kind of random. Um, I had not really planned to write a series and had like pitched it on the fly on a telephone call. And um, anyway, that's a story for another day. But I had a very, very tight deadline for my first book, Slightly South of Simple, in that series. And I was in Salisbury. I was actually on book tour. So I was home with my parents and getting ready to do my event in Salisbury. And I had to start the book while I was on tour because I knew I would never finish it if I didn't. And so I kind of had this concept in my head of who these four women were, this mother and their three sisters. And so I was telling my mom, like I was trying to, you know, get this story down. And I was like, okay, this is, you know, this is what the mom's like. And th these are the three daughters. And this is what they're like. And, you know, this is like the love interest from the past. And so, and so, and she chose all of their names. Oh, so wow. like I was, she picked wow. so Ansley, Caroline, Sloan, Emerson, Jack, all of them. Those are all courtesy of Beth Woodson. That's awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. And I know. So um, so she named them. Um, sometimes I feel like it's random, um, but I will tell you this. There was a character in Under the Southern Sky, and the character of Amelia in Under the Southern Sky. Her name was Keaton when I wrote the first draft, and my editor just didn't love that name for whatever reason. Or she just thought I had too many like gender-neutral names in the book, and we changed it. And I will think of her as Keaton for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's, yep. yeah that happens. I, I have characters like that. The character of Zeus in The Forest of Vanishing Stars was originally Baruch. He's still Baruch to me. That's his name. Yeah. But my but my editor didn't like it. So, um, and you know, it, 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 names come with such... Um, such a sense of connotation with them. Like, you, you know, the, the name Gertrude sounds different than the name Sunshine. Like you, like they right. evoke completely different kinds of people. So right. um, it, I, it matters. And if someone has a really visceral reaction that, you know, this name is wrong, then it is really worth reconsidering. It's just, it's, it's funny how much names can mean. Um, Christy, I thought you were going to say you just um, read Mary Kay's brain and, and choose names that she's planning on choosing for her next book. Well, that's true too. Oh my gosh. So annoying. Yes. <laughs> she yeah. She's referring to the fact that we both had Lanier's in recent books. 
And, well, and, in, and in the book before my protagonist was Ivy and I had to change right. her name because your book came out and your protagonist was Ivy. And I was like, dang it. Cause you know, you are attached to those names. Like once you've spent 400 pages with them. Right. And Ivy Perkins in the Santa suit was named for our dog Ivy. <laughs> it's, to me, it's just proof that we're all becoming one. Our brains are melting into like one super melting. brain. We're all thinking yeah. together. Exactly. And I got the name Lanier. Lanier is the missing school teacher in Homewreckers. I had met Patty's friend Lanier. And um, and I told Patty, I'm stealing your friend's name for this character in Homewreckers. And, and then something happened while I was working on the book. You know, we had this whole, we found a, a wallet in the wall in the house we were restoring. And unbelievably, it turns out the wallet belonged to a woman whose last name was Lanier. And that wasn't planned. That was just one of those God whispers, God winks, I guess we call them. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Names are, go ahead, Kristen. No, no, no. Go, go, go ahead, Patty. No, you weren't done. Oh, I was just going to say a lot of my historical names, I have to dig through um, like uh, census reports for to, to see, to like see which names were, um, were popular in particular countries uh, at, at certain times. And it's not like I just say like, okay, this name was the top of the list. Cause you know, as we were saying before, a lot of times names come with a feeling, right. And like names that might've come with a feeling in 1920 um, might come with a different feeling now. So sometimes you have to find a name that feels like it fits the time period that does fit the time period based on the fact that you can find it in these lists, but that also comes with the right resonance today. So um, names can be more, they're, they're more complicated than I realized at the beginning of my career. Yeah. And sometimes when I pick a name, I will, um, and I know it's a main character. I'll look up the meaning. Yeah, me too. Have you done that? Where you yep, look up yep. what the, what the root meaning of it is? Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't use, I don't use family names except once. All four of the main characters in Once Upon a Wardrobe are, are my son's, both my son's names and my daughter's name and my husband's name. So who shares a name? my son. So I used their names in a book, but only that one time. And the rest, like y'all, I go through census reports, names that were popular that year. Sometimes I look at, um, I keep all my kids' graduation enrollment, you know, and I keep them in my, and I'll just run my name down, you know, Edward Barrington, Hopland, you know, the third. That's a good one. Um, So we come, but still sometimes you start with one. And you're halfway through the book and you're like, she just does not sound like a Heather. Yes. And then so her true. name changes. So true. So. So true. And then sometimes you have, you find yourself, oh my gosh, I've got seven characters and they're all their first names start with a T. Yes. Yeah. Do you ever feel like it's like you're writing and you're naming like your secondary characters and you're like, literally every name in this book starts with an R. What yeah. is wrong? Yes. With yes. Why? Or your like, editor yes. writes to you and says, there's a yes. few too many names that start with a C. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I will also say this is like a little Easter egg. If you read um, a lot of my books, um, I every single one of my books has a, a minor character named Anne, and that's named after Anne Frank. That's been since the beginning of my career. And also a minor character named in some way after my childhood best friend, Jay Cash, 
who died in a car accident 19 years ago. But there is always some appearance of Jay or James or the last name Cash or something in every single one of my books. So that's my little, so there's always those two minor character names are always in there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I try to kind of sneak them in as subtly as possible. Um, So yeah, there you go. Look for that. Just when we think we know. What's that, Mary Kay? I've named characters as baby gifts. Oh, that's a nice idea. That's a great idea. Then they go out and buy the parents and the grandparents go out and buy 20 books because their kid's name is in it. Yeah. Genius (laughs) marketing move. Genius. Gosh, just when we think we know everything about each other, they're just peeling back the onion layers, baby. I know. It's it's all just part of us becoming that one super brain. We're just taking steps closer. Exactly. All right. Okay. We have a couple more minutes. Kristen, could you ask one more? Sure. Yeah. Jill Maureen posted this and it's really fascinating. It's a great question. The question is, if you could travel to a fictional place, where would it be? How about you, Mary Kay? Brigadoon. Mm. Oh, I like it. Mm. All right. Christy, how about you? I was waiting for explanation. I'm like, okay. I skip me and come back to me in a minute. I got to think about this one. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad I get to go before Patty because it would be Whisperwood. (laughs) Which is the, from the secret book, the secret book of Flora Leah. That is the, um, the name of the imaginary land that the sisters make up that they find comfort in. And um, it is such a comforting place that I would like to travel there too. I would too. And they get to be anything they want. So when you go into Whispered, you can say, I want to be a bird. I want to be a bunny. I want to be a lion. Mm. Thank you, Kristen. (laughs) Me too. But I think you can all bet what I'll say. A fictional Let me guess. Can I guess? Hmm. Yes. Narnia. Is it Narnia? Yes. <laughs> oh, wait, Patty, do you have an interest in that? That's so strange. I have I've, no idea. I've read a couple of them, you know, but I mean, just like on the side. Yeah. But <laughs> I want to go to the Narnia after the White Witch yeah. is gone, not not before. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of scary. What'd you decide, Christy? I don't know. This is like so terrible that I can't think of somewhere like really great. Um, I think it says something negative about me. I don't think I read that many books that are set in fictional places, though. Yeah, that, that makes weird? sense. Nope, that makes sense. Like, I really... Peachtree Bluff. You want to go to Peachtree Bluff. Well, I would love to go to Peachtree Bluff. Yes. Oh, well, if we don't have to do books, I mean, um, you know, what a big Gilmore Girls fan I am. So there I would you go. Know. That's a good one. Right. Story we didn't say it had to be books, just That's a fictional right. place. Right. Yeah, I don't, fall into that. I don't think there's a book with Brigadoon in it. I think it's no, I don't think so either. Now that no, yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah, maybe that's your next book, Mary Kay, a Brigadoon yeah. book. A Brigadoon book, probably not. <laughs> book set in Brigadoon. Okay, everyone, that is it for us. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you back here next Wednesday night at seven p.m. Same time, same place, while we talk with Lisa Unger. And until then, have a great week and happy reading, y'all. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.
produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.